Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to be reading verses 10 through 18 of the English Standard Version. Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, being fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times and in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, we recognize our need of having your truth resonate within us. That you would reveal the wonderful characteristics of who you are, the reality of Christ and his atoning sacrifice for us. But Lord, that it would go farther than that, that you would give us a fresh love, a passion for these things, that you would continue to ignite in us a desire to worship and to do all these uh, things for Christ. Now, we recognize that as we come to the shield of faith, we're going to be probably seriously challenged at times of our own commitments, our own understandings. So have your way with us. Help us to understand, to apply to love, to receive with great joy all that your word would have for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I've shared a little bit of this story to some of you at different points, but not all of it. In 2007, just as uh, we were getting ready to leave Chile, I had the wonderful opportunity of having this conference in the southern part where my friend is and serves. It was a time of bringing a wonderful, revered preacher from North America down, somebody who has spoken to my heart time and time and time again. If I was to name the number one preacher in English in the last 30 years, this man would be it. I've just not heard anyone who could take the word of God and, and allow all of the importance to, to come to the forth, to, to have all of the meaning from the Old Testament and the New Testament, to bring together the reasoning, and then on top of that, to have the unction of the Spirit to preach it to the heart. And this is exactly what happened while we were down there. He was preaching five times. I don't think any of us, not even myself, expected anything. Um, we had his sermons. We had a, a translator ready, knowing everything he was going to say. But you cannot prepare for the work of the Holy Spirit. 
the first time he stepped into that pulpit. And for the next 46 minutes or so, 82 men wept. Every time he got into that pulpit in that weekend, these pastors wept. It was an amazing time of seeing the word of God do its work, bring men to repentance. And Sunday morning, the leader of the denomination actually in leading the service confessed his sin and asked for forgiveness from these pastors for leading them astray. They had been starting to go down a route of emotionalism and uh, Pentecostalism. And uh, they saw the truth of the unction of the Spirit upon a man preaching. It was such an important time for that denomination. It literally changed them to where they are now. Uh, and there are men who still remember that, and that was 15 years ago. They remember that as the most important sermon they've ever heard. At the 10th anniversary in 2017, I tried to get a hold of my friend Art to go back down again at their request. <clears throat> and the email I had for him, I tried calling. It, it just all never worked. I did a little bit of Googling and I found out he had fallen from grace. He had fallen into sin. And, and I can't understand even today sometimes how such a gifted preacher can fall into sin. Uh, how a, a man who God had raised up to teach hundreds of seminary uh, uh, pastors, hundreds of, of, of lay leaders who had established a church, who had been used around the world for his powerful preaching, and it all came to naught. And it all has to do with what we're talking about today and not recognizing the fiery darts of the evil one and picking up the shield of faith. I know that there is during this time a, a large number of people in this pandemic who are leaving the church, who because of the stresses and the anxieties of the pandemic is bringing, they reveal the serious fissures, the cracks that were in their faith. And they're leaving. The same with pastors. It, it is spiritually, emotionally draining. And if we are not prepared to pick up the shield of faith, to recognize our enemy, to see the darts that the fiery one brings or sends, then we're going to be in trouble. And, and that's where we start this morning. We mustn't be complacent about the war that we find ourselves in. We need to go back and start this morning by recognizing again the situation, the context that Paul is calling us to, because it filters into the very description of the shield of faith. We are in a ferocious battle for our soul. I mean, it's easy for us to look at these spiritual pieces of armor and week after week not remember the immediate verses before and 10 on that, that spoke of the, the challenge that this is a warfare. After all, the, the pieces of armor only take up three verses, and yet we have three 40, 45-minute sermons on them. We're called in verse 11 to pick up the whole armor of God. The emphasis here is that it's a complete set. If we forget to 
cover ourselves with any part of that armor, if we get, forget to pick up any of the individual pieces, we will find ourselves unprotected. It's certainly true in the battlefield, isn't it? If a soldier goes out today forgetting his helmet, forgetting his flak jacket, and not having these things on, he becomes vulnerable not only to a stray bullet, but to an expert marksman who has seen the chink in his armor, who has seen him not having his helmet, who takes deadly aim. So there's an urgency this morning. We need to understand as we think about these pieces, and we need to consciously appropriate the truths that we're coming to. Also in verse 11, we're told that we're to pick up this whole armor of God daily, repeatedly. It's an action that is ongoing, unending, which again emphasizes the reality that if we forget any one part, any one day, if we grow weary in putting on that armor, we will fall. So we need to put on the whole armor of God. Every piece, every day, without fail. Why? Because we're at war with a spiritual enemy we can't see. And we're not at war with flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic forces of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This enemy is real. This enemy is powerful. This enemy is spiritual. And without spiritual armor, we are helpless. We're also told that in this battle, that we're wrestling, we're grappling. It's the image of Greco-Roman wrestlers locked in a death grip, a hand-to-hand -hand mortal combat. If the enemy was physical, we would see, we would touch, we would smell him. Apart from our challenge, or a part of our challenge of living in our 21st century, our, our culture is so scientific, our culture is so rationalistic, it's to take this warning seriously we have a spiritual enemy. I mean, I was thinking about it the other day, and I can't, I can't even count the number of TV shows and books that are all focused on the occult, on the spiritual world around, around us, and how it is used for our good. Everything from the Marvel Universe to Harry Potter to all of these things on TV. And what it does is it desensitizes us, if nothing else, desensitizes us to the truth that the spiritual realm is a realm of warfare. These things certainly don't feel like spiritual warfare, do they? We, we can get up in the morning and it just doesn't feel like spiritual warfare. And yet I know that there are families in this church who are struggling. There are individuals and even whole churches that are even now under the fiery darts of the evil one. Make no mistake. If you are a follower of Christ, you are at war. When God opened our eyes to sin and we called out and confessed that sin to God, received Christ as our Lord and Savior, we were drafted at that moment into the army of God. And there is no room for conscientious objectors here. You are either on the side of righteousness or on the side of unrighteousness. And if we're on the side of righteousness, we better be prepared daily for that spiritual warfare. We're told that the leader of our enemy is none other than the devil. 
that he has many schemes to which he will wage war with. He is a consummate general. He knows our weaknesses, our deficiencies. He knows how to exploit them. He knows how to best deploy his forces and his traps for us. And he will stoop at nothing to win the war. You may wake up this morning or tomorrow morning and think, well, I'm not at war. It doesn't seem like a war. But the enemy of your soul has not forgotten. His motive, his desire has not changed. It is set on you and it is set for your destruction. So we need to, to, to feel this sense of urgency that's underlying the text. We cannot afford to become complacent. <clears throat> now, again, I know that there are some of us struggling in the church today. There, there are some individuals. There are families that are, are under serious uh, struggles. And you know what? Over the last couple of days, I felt them. I... I studied, I prepared Thursday. I had a, an outline of what I wanted to do in this sermon. I felt moved by God. My, I was excited. I, I came to Thursday night, Friday. I, I couldn't write. I, I literally sat for hours and, and found every excuse not to write. And, and the, Satan, I, I just felt, was, was directing me to all these other things to distract my heart, my, my mind. I, I couldn't be engaged. I tried to go for a walk. I, I just couldn't do it. And, and so I believe that Satan did not want me to write this sermon. I believe Satan did not want you to hear this sermon. And again, I know that there are people struggling in this church. They have not picked up the armor of God daily. They have not picked up every piece of that armor. They've forgotten that they're at war. They have forgotten that they have such a vicious enemy. How do I know? Because I know the heartache and the prayers of your leadership for this church. I know the things that they wrestle with and they call unto God for. And this understanding needs to lead us this morning. There's an imminent danger in Paul's words he's speaking of here. We are to pick up the shield of faith so that we can extinguish the flaming arrows or the darts of the evil one. Now in the ESV, the word that's used is dart. It could be a, any projectile that an enemy would send over. In ancient times, it was most likely a, an arrow. That was the most common thing. And if you've ever seen any of the movies of, uh, of those times of the Dark Ages or back, you'll recognize it immediately. There's this, there's this huge uh, 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 frontal uh, attack that goes on. It has all the foot soldiers and all the, the pikes and the spears. And then behind them, there is this large uh, row of archers. And uh, as the archers get ready, they take a wad of cloth, a cloth that has been dipped in pitch or tar, and they put it on the end. And they draw back their bow. And just before they release it, it's lit in fire. And it's sent through the sky as a flaming arrow. It was a very effective way of scaring even the soldiers. It was effective in that, that when this flaming arrow hit the target, it would most likely ignite something else around it. 
It, it, it would not simply stick into the shields, but in sticking in and hitting it with that thump, it would also uh, shake off some of the tar, some of the residue, some of the, the things. So there'd be this splatter of little uh, splotches of fire that would go everywhere. So it was terrifying. It, it was used not simply by a single bow or an archer at a time and, and not simply uh, here or there. Most of the time, they would be hundreds, if not thousands of archers all lined up at once. And they would all send their flaming arrows into the enemy in this long, high arc of fire goes into the sky and it rains down fire on the enemy, dousing and starting little fires all over the place. Just the sight of the arrows at times could dishearten the enemy, could make them walk to, want to run from the battle. And just, just think of that picture for a moment, the image that the, the apostle is giving us here. This is the description of the attack that we're under. The fiery arrows are sent to create fear and spark fires. The evil one is sending his fiery arrows at God's people. Now, verse 10, <clears throat> Paul calls the enemy the devil. Here, he calls him the evil one. And it's not originally a proper name, but it becomes a name, the evil one, because it really means the one who is evil. And if we think about that for a second, we need to think about this in the sense that the one who is aiming those arrows at us and shooting at us is the very personification of evil. It speaks of his malice. It speaks of his evil. It speaks of his hatred towards God and towards God's people. He is the antithesis of God and God's love towards us. The one who has pitted himself against God. The one who will lead in the final battle of evil versus good. The one who wages war on the church in all ages. In speaking of him, <clears throat> in writing the, his wonderful hymn, Mighty Fortress, Martin, Martin Luther says, On earth he, there is no equal. On earth there is no equal. That's what's being depicted here by this name. He embodies all that is evil. He is against God. And that's the enemy that we're facing. That's the person who's sending these flaming arrows. His intent is to harm. His intent is to ruin our testimony. His intent is to destroy our very lives. These arrows and darts, are, aren't, they're not paper airplanes or Nerf blasters. They're not even paint guns that would hit us and it would sting. They're not sent by friends who are in a, in a game. This is sent by the one who hates God and by extension hates all who are made righteous in God, in Christ. They're sent with deadly accuracy. They're sent with cruel intent. They're sent to bring as much destruction, as much pain, as much strife and hardship as possible. These flaming arrows and darts, they can come in many forms. They can, we're told that the Satan here has an unlimited number of schemes. His, his number of ways are, are inexhaustible, the number of fiery darts that he could be sending. 
There's nothing he won't do and no one he will spare. These flaming darts and arrows could be false teachings. It could be false teachers. It could be someone or something that comes into the church and takes someone's imagination and then sets them up, leads them astray from God. It drives a wedge between them and the people of God. These fiery darts or arrows could be persecutions or oppressions sent our way to weaken our reliance and our trust in God, to make us doubt God's goodness, to make us doubt God's love and his good and wonderful purposes for us. These darts or fiery arrows could be trials. It could be the loss of our job, an ongoing physical ailment that just gets worse, that gnaws at our faith, that exhausts us physically, emotionally. If they bring doubt, they bring despair, they bring depression, and so continue to eat away at our trust in God. They could be personal conflicts, interpersonal conflicts, frictions and sore points between people, problems between husbands and wives, things that, that just blow up into huge uh, marriage-threatening issues. They could cause one family in a church to hate another, cause a person to leave the church, another to fall away. These flaming darts or arrows can be temptations of all kind, aimed at the secret sins that are within us. Those things that we don't think anyone else knows. And it, it, when we're alone, we, we silently slate our lusts at them. The options that Satan has at his disposal are endless. The kinds of darts and errand are innumerable. And make no mistake, his intent is never simply to cause confusion or to cause a little boo-boo. Each arrow is notched into the bow. Each arrow is set aflame. Each has a target and a person, a purpose. And when it hits, its desire, his desire, is that it do as much damage as possible. So that when it hits, that pitch splatters and causes secondary fires. His desire is that every arrow of temptation hit its mark. And when it hits its mark, that we entertain the temptation, that the temptation then becomes sin, and sin comes to full flower in its most profound ungodliness in our lives. He's aiming for utmost impact. So a temptation of lust leads to fornication or the dissolution of a, of a marriage. A, a temptation of lying could lead the people of God to blasphemy. That is the ultimate purpose of each of these fiery darts or arrows. And they may not look that strong or that uh, uh, threatening. And yet that is the intent behind that, to find that little niche in the armor and to bury in there and then set it aflame. So this is the imagery that Paul is using here. But we need to understand without a shadow of a doubt, Satan's actions represent a real and imminent danger to our soul. We are at war, whether we know it or not, and so we must never be complacent. Okay, so 
we understand the cruel intent of our enemy, it's to destroy us. We understand how dangerous these fiery darts or arrows are to our soul. They're incendiary devices that are sent to, to create havoc and pain. How are we to com combat them? How are we to deal with these? If he is, Satan is, is indeed so strong that he has no equal here on earth, how are we to stand up to him? Well, Paul says, in all circumstances, we need to pick up the shield of faith. In talking about a shield, Paul is obviously talking about something that every Roman citizen or every person of the day would have seen on a Roman soldier. Not the small, square, or rounded ones. We're talking about the big ones the size of a door. In fact, the word here for shield is the same or comes from the same root word as door. And so we're talking about the large shield, one that was four feet high, two feet wide, and took up the whole strength of, a, of a, the soldier to carry it. It was made of two large sections of, of, of wood that were stuck together, so it was very thick and very heavy. On the inside, it had a small handle for the hand and then had this long leather tether that could wrap around the arm and so help hold it up. On the outside, it was covered in a tough animal hide with a metal rim on the top and on the bottom to, to help keep it in place. These big shields were easy to couch behind, to crouch behind. You could have a, a whole line of soldiers, and as they come together, they could interlock their, their shields and, and create an impenetrable wall. But something else here, the, uh, for all of the warfare that the Romans had in expanding their empire and keeping it going, they quickly learned how to deal with flaming arrows. You see, what they used to do is they used to take these big shields and they either soaked the shield itself or more likely they took off the hide and they soaked the hide in water so that it was uh, soaking wet. When the arrows actually hit the target and they stuck in, there wouldn't be anything to burn. Even if the arrow hit with such a velocity that there was tar and pitch falling off and wanting to create secondary fires, there was nothing to, for the, the fire to consume. This is the imagery that Paul is speaking of here when he says, we have a shield of faith that can quench all of the fiery darts of the evil one. Now notice he says in the ESV, in all circumstances, that little phrase, in all circumstances, it's probably more correct to translate it as something like above all or with all of these things or uh, along with everything else. It may sound strange for us to think of it in this way, but we've put on the belt, we've put on the breastplate, we've put on the shoes. Now, on top of all that, pick up the shield of faith. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones has noted that the first three things, the belt, the breastplate, the shoes, the, the soldier would have worn from morning to night. There, there was not a time during the day when he did not have those on, whether he went to the privy, whether he was out at the mess hall, whether he was out for a walk, whether he was in, in his barracks. He always had these three things on. But the shield, the sword, and the helmet were those things that he picked up when the war call came, when the captain at arms sounded the alarm. Now, in the Old Testament, shield, it's used all the time. And 
primarily, first and foremost, as a, an instrument of war, like just like this, picking up a shield. Many of them had it. But a shield was also a metaphor in the Old Testament for God's care and protection of his people. Psalm 28, 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him, my heart trusts. I am helped. Genesis 15, verse 1, that wonderful chapter where God cuts a covenant with Abram. Here's what it says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your great reward. At the beginning, in the time of prayer, I don't know if you noticed, but I, I, underpinning my prayers, Psalm 3, 3, Psalm 84, uh, verse 11, they were seeking and coming unto the God as the one who protects his people. But again, time and time in the Old Testament, Psalm 89, Psalm 115, Proverbs 32, Deuteronomy 33, over and over and over again, God promises to be for his people their shield. He will protect them. Now here in Ephesians 6, Paul says that this shield is the shield of faith, or the shield which is faith. And like the other pieces of armor that we've already looked at, we need to ask ourselves the question, is this an object of faith, meaning objective truth, or we're talking about a subjective experience of faith? Because it can really be understood both ways. Well, it's really both in this situation. We have to understand it as both. And here's the reality. If it was simply up to me and my strength, my strength and my faith in God, I would never be able to stand against Satan and his fiery arrows. You would never be able to stand against Satan and his fiery arrows. Faith is only as strong as the object of faith. So here's the thing. We stand on truth. By it, we appropriate these truths, and that's what gives our faith its personal resilience and strength. These objective truths that God reveals about himself, about salvation, about Jesus Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit, all of these things come together. They are eternal truths revealed to us, but by faith we receive them, and that faith then becomes a live agent in us. So faith always applies truth. Faith stands firm on the promises of God because they're for us. Faith stands strong on the nature and the, the character of God because he is our God. He cares for me. He saved me. And all of this gets to the very heart of how the shield of faith works. When the evil one sends his fiery arrows our way, when temptations come, we hold up the truth of the promises and the character of God. That's what we have to have our eyes fixed on. When the arrows of temptation come at us, we crouch behind the shield. And our focus is not on the things around us. It's not on the arrows coming at us. It's not on our situation, but it's on the truth of God for us. When we're, tempted, when we're tempted to sin or to fall away, we stand firm in the objective truth of God that Christ died for my sins, that God has started and will complete his good work in me, that the Holy Spirit will continue to lead and guide me. 
Okay, well, that's great. And how does it actually work, though? Well, we can say that faith first, faith first and foremost sets before us the very character and nature of God. We have read, we have received these truths that God is good, God is holy, God is righteous. He is worthy of our praise and obedience. He desires our best, and he is faithful and faultless. He will never forsake us or leave us. Faith then helps us to recognize sin for what it is. Against the, this backdrop of God's holiness, his faithfulness, his unfailing love, faith shows us the danger of these temptations, the actions and the disobedience that will result and the consequences to our soul. Faith then sends us to Christ as our shield, as our protector. In all ways, we know he was tempted like us and yet did not sin. He knew rejection, a new temptation, and yet never sinned. In him, we find our shield. And with that, faith then shuts the door on sin. It gives us the fortitude and the perseverance to stand day by day and choose godliness, to say no to temptation, to say no to sin. And then lastly, number five, faith reminds us of God's past grace in my life. As I look back in times of trouble, I can see God's indelible finger working in and through me. All of these truths that as I've made a stand for truth, God has proven time and time again that he is for me. When our faith holds up the promises and the character of God for us in Christ, we are able to stand firm against the fiery arrows of the evil one. The bigger God is for us or to us, the better shield he is for us. When darts of temptation come, faith quenches our lust for the flesh. When the darts of temptation come, faith quenches the lust of the eyes. When darts of temptation come, faith quenches the pride of life. When the fiery doubts, uh, darts of doubt come uh, that would lead us to despair, that would uh, or lead us to rejecting God and, and moving away from the faith, faith actually gives us a grand vista or view of the greatness of God. That he is already the victor over all creation of all time. And it reminds us that we are already co-heirs or co-heirs in Christ. And one day the promises of eternal salvation and being with God are ours. When these darts and arrows come in, we crouch behind the shield that is faith, that is the faith of God's promises in Christ to us. He is our great shield. Okay. Well, I also want to just Go another step farther here. How, how do we actually action this? How does it come to us? Well, first and foremost, it's the gift of God, isn't it? Ephesians 2, we hold that up as, as one of the key verses for evangelicals, and rightly so, by grace, we have been saved through faith, or we have been saved through faith. 
And we talk about when we come to saving faith, when we come to salvation. But you know what? God doesn't just save us and say, well, you've been saved by faith. Now, good luck. Do whatever is necessary in this world, and hopefully you'll get to the other end. Faith always has an ongoing outworking of righteousness and salvation in us. It is the gift of God that keeps on giving. God has given his people something that will extinguish all the efforts of Satan in this life. But only as we grow in our joyful embracing of it. All right, faith is the gift of God. Faith is also perfected in Jesus Christ. Not only do we see that in the wilderness in, in Matthew 4, when Jesus was approached and tempted three times by Satan very personally, and each time he says what? It is written. So he says, this is the objective truth of God that I have appropriated, that this is what I'm standing on. But we also know that throughout his life, he perfected faith by living in perfect obedience to the Heavenly Father, <clears throat> by giving of himself as a sacrifice and fulfilling all the purposes of God. So faith was perfected in Christ. It's the gift of God. It's perfected in Christ. It's also merited to us. This is not my faith. This is not my faith. My, the strength of my faith by which I stand. This is the faith of Christ, that the faith and the righteousness that has come to me, that has been given to me, it is his faith that I pick up the shield. It's a, a very real and imminent danger. There are incoming fiery missiles all the time. We must not be complacent those arrows, what was amazing about a bow is that they were almost silent. You never heard them if you were the enemy. And if you were, even if you were standing close, be, close by, you often just heard a bing and nothing else. The objective truth of our faith never changes. Our salvation that is pinned to that objective truth never changes. But our appropriation our grasping at this faith, our embracing of these uh, objective truths. If we forget that we're in a war, if we forget the dangers to our soul, if we forget the, the vengeance and the strength of our enemies, we are history. If we do not grow in our faith, learning to drink deeply from the well that is truth, learning to embrace that truth more and more and take that truth to our, to our hearts and make it our own. That's how we grow in our faith. That's how we pick up the shield of faith in all situations and circumstances. If, if we don't grow, our experience of faith becomes anemic. Our faith becomes weak. It becomes pale. It becomes unable to withstand even the regular pressures of life, let alone the fiery darts or arrows of the evil one. When that happens, our ability to hold up the shield is almost impossible. We're not prepared. We're not strong enough. We, we can't hold on to the strap. And the arrows will find their way past the shield because they're shot with perfect accuracy. 
I love the image of the soldier being able to interlock all of these shields together and make this impenetrable line because I, I think it's a wonderful image for us as a church. There are going to be times when we find ourselves weak in the faith, when we haven't nurtured that faith and, and we're going to be hit with arrows and we need the family of God. We need that impenetrable wall that comes. And, and I think one of the greatest challenges for us during this pandemic. We are yearning to get back to, to have time of fellowship, to feel that interconnectedness as a family. But you know what? Even more than that, we need to understand that as we come back, there is a work of grace amongst us to strengthen our individual faith. That as we sing praises to God, as we, as we uh, preach the word of God, as we're one together doing these things, God is here with us strengthening one another. And one of the things I think the pandemic has caused is during this time of anxiety and stress and, and all of these other things upon our life emotionally and physically, we found our faith strained to the utmost. And yet Satan keeps sending arrows. We found that our disciples, our, our discipleship, our seeking after the disciplines of God have not been earnest enough. We focused so much on understanding our knowledge of God. We, we know a, a greater panoramic of the wonderful revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation. We can talk about deep theological issues, but we have not found a way for them to seep down into our innermost core. And so when the cracks come in our lives and in our families, if we are not prepared, we will not be able to lift up the shield of faith. And I think that's probably one of the greatest hindrances to our generation, not recognizing that we need to pick it up. Even if we understand that there's an enemy, even if we understand there's a battle, somehow we rest in this sovereignty of God in the end and, and that we've been predestined. That, that does not mean that we, have, uh, we don't have a responsibility in growing in our faith and trusting in God more and rejoicing in God's goodness because the enemy is still upon us. Christ has not yet returned we have not yet been called unto him. The arrows are being drawn. They're being lit. They're being sent. And there is much damage, even in this church, because we fail to recognize, to pick up the shield of faith. Let us pray.